Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the 16th International Workshop on Multiple Myeloma, which was held in Madrid, Spain. In this session, you will hear from Leif Bergsagel, Francesco Maura, Jill Corre, and Niels Weinhold, who discuss the genomics of high-risk myeloma and smoldering myeloma and features that distinguish these. The experts discuss how levels of immunoglobulin transcription differ, the important role of next-generation sequencing, the role of deletion 17P and TP53 mutations, and more. Hello, I'm Leif Bergsagel from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, and I'm here in Madrid, Spain, for the IW Myeloma 2023. And we've just finished the first session of the meeting, I'm here with Dr. Francesco Maura from the University of Miami, Dr. Jill Corre from uh, Toulouse, and Dr. Niels Weinhold from Heidelberg. The session talked about high-risk myeloma and smoldering multiple myeloma and the genetic features that distinguish these things. It was a very exciting session. Um, started off with my talk, which uh, had a, a very interesting point, which was that one of the major things that distinguish uh, the different stages of uh, pre-malignant to malignant uh, plasma cell disease is the level of immunoglobulin transcription. So as a cell goes from a normal plasma cell to an MGUS cell to a smoldering myeloma to multiple myeloma, relapsed myeloma, the amount of immunoglobulin that cell transcribes goes down consistently and in the late stages uh, proliferation goes up. And although this seems like a relatively simple concept, it's somewhat novel and helps us put uh, these uh, different phases uh, in context. There was much more sophisticated analysis, though, by my partners on this stage. And I'd like to ask you, uh, Francesco, to say, what did you take home from this uh, session today? So I think that uh, I was actually very pleased that uh, the pioneering of FISH and a group that really like made the history of FISH in myeloma and published most of the papers is transitioning to NGS, uh, which I think is a historical uh, sign. Uh, very welcome. Uh, it's very hard logistically, but I think that the idea is that we are living in a phase of transition where we used to stage patients using a fish, which is a technology that's been around for 20 years. And now with the lower cost, uh, more standardized uh, computational pipeline, next-generation sequencing finally is getting through. People finally see some utility in that. Uh, there are prognostic models, different, uh, different prognostic models, uh, different uh, factors. But uh, the fact that the community is working on it means that we can generate more data. More data can be used for clinical trials or clinical trials, and we can finally get to a better understanding of high risk, finally, and not just on a small sample set. Right, and you, you talked about sort of different features that we haven't used in the past to stratify patients. You talked about chromothipsis, you talked about uh, signatures induced by melphalan and that occurring spontaneously induced by Apobec. Um, how do you see patients uh, taking it, or, and their physicians taking advantage of that kind of information? So the, one of the problem, I think, as uh, Garrett also introduced, uh, is the fact that a lot of these species tend to co-occur together. And so, for example, patients with 414, a lot of them have 1Q, 
and a lot of them entered in queue, or a certain group of hyper-deployed has like all possible deletions, uh, and they have also gene expression, high-risk PR, or other. So the idea is how we can or harmonize such complexity. We have basically every month new papers saying there is something high-risk in myeloma, and so the idea is what is association, what is causation, that really doesn't matter for patients because they want just to know what is high risk. So I think we need complex statistical modeling, more complex than COX and scoring, as with the one we try to develop, that is based on weight of each, in, each individual feature corrected for treatment. I think treatment is very important to correct. Like one, one of the comments that you made about the Forte and the French court, yeah. I think that my interpretation, even if I didn't look in your data, but it could be that the 1Q mono like single gain treated with all regimens are very poor prognosis, but with the KRD transplant of, or KCD transplant from the Forte are actually intermediate because this is a sensitive group. And so the difference between a single 1Q and AMP is larger when you get a very sensitive group but not in the older population where, I mean, that's just like an interpretation, but, uh, you know, I think treatment, when we look at this large court, adjusting for treatment age, these are very important features that, for example, are two ISS, which is extremely valuable, but they didn't do it. So, and I think that's a big limitation for patients because um, ISS 3, 85 years old, and ISS 2, 3, 55 years old, a completely different outcome. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Dr. Quarry, you uh, presented, you know, I think it was five or six questions, and you addressed each of them, and it was very clear. And I, and I learned something um, with with each of those topics. But I guess maybe I'll talk about 17P and the, and mutation of p53 because that's a controversy that's been around for a while, and it's much clearer to my mind. Maybe if you'd just like to to summarize the conclusions. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, about deletion 17P, we have two uh, important questions to debate. Uh, first one is the threshold uh, to use uh, to define uh, the truly high-risk uh, patient with a deletion 17P. And when you look at uh, papers, sometimes it's uh, 20%, sometimes it's 30%, sometimes it's 50%. Already saw a clinical trial uh, showing that a drug abrogated high risk disease. And when I uh, look at the definition of high risk, deletion 17P positive in more than 1% of plasma cells. So I think this is not acceptable anymore, and we have to uh, agree on this threshold uh, in order to talk uh, about the same myeloma population. So. There was a meta-analysis uh, three years ago with a uh, European patient, more than 1,000 with deletion 17P at different level, and the threshold of 55%, an arbitrary, was defined as the best to, uh, uh, to be uh, clinically pertinent. Uh, and uh, we confirmed this uh, in our own uh, database with patients uh, from uh, the real-life uh, data, with all 
treatment. So I think this is important to, to, uh, to have in mind that the deletion 17P is really uh, high risk when present in the majority of plasma cells. The second question is the uh, uh, mutational status of TP53 because uh, now we, it is clear that uh, when you are double hit myeloma, deletion 17P plus TP53 mutation, you, uh, this is an ultra high risk. The, the pronostic is uh, very poor. But uh, something was unclear. Is a de an isolated deletion 17P, and this is the most frequent situation in myeloma without the TP53 mutation, is associated to a poor prognostic? And yes, uh, it is. And the other question, there is a third situation, the TP53 mutation alone without the deletion 17P, and it is also associated. So we need both uh, if we want to accurately assess the risk uh, in myeloma. Can I ask, ask you something? I agree 100%. One question that I always wonder, when you tr set a threshold in fish uh, on the percentage, you basically assume that the population is 100% tumor. But we know that even after sorting no, with the by beads, so how do you normalize? We always, after sorting, we always check the purity and we correct. But how do you check? We like uh, by um, a microscope. Capalanda. Uh, Capalanda. No, with a, ah no, uh, we we know um, we we define the percentage of plasma cells, but we don't have the percentage of uh, clonal plasma cells. Okay. So, so like because we say that the forty percent deletion DVD three could be. 100% once correct for purity, no? But in myeloma, you know that. Okay. Newly, di newly diagnosed myeloma, that wouldn't be an issue. Yes. But, but speaking of sort of heterogeneity, Niels, you gave a, a fascinating talk that simulated a lot of discussion, and you showed that within an individual patient, if you biopsy the myeloma at different sites in the body, there's, there's different genetics present. And you, you even said that there somewhere for I think it was over 4,000 days, there was lurking uh, a, a tumor that only appeared at the final stages. How do you, how do you explain that? Um, so according to our experience, uh, the situation is in, in myeloma, we do these sequencing studies, we usually just see the expanded subclones or even the dominant subclones. Uh, so let's say we, we detect three subclones, that doesn't mean that we're just three subclones, it just means that these three subclones uh, dominate at that location. And there's another point, um, it seems to be that there's a kind of uh, regional evolution in myeloma, so that different subclones evolve uh, independently from each other at different sites in this skeleton. And we still don't understand which of them contribute to the kind of diffuse pattern that you can also detect at the iliac crest and which of them uh, are kind of locally for the whole disease cause. We, we don't know yet and uh, I guess that's something that Irene Gobri is also interested in um, regarding metastasis in myeloma or kind of diffuse infiltration. So that means we have a combination of dominance of subclones at uh, sites and spatial heterogeneity that could explain that some clones are not detectable during the whole disease course, but they still, but nevertheless they exist and can still uh, contribute to relapse. Yeah, I would think it'd be very important to try and identify where their cells are and what allows them to persist so that 
it, it's, it's very frustrating. With some of our new therapies, we can eradicate the disease completely and we can't detect it with our most sensitive techniques. And yet still, several years later, those patients may relapse. And we, we really need to, to find out how we can target and eliminate that cell. Exactly, and as uh, Francesco showed, uh, so one, one cell can actually drive the whole relapse, and so that kind of uh, address or leads to the question, what about MRD diagnostics? If there's, if there's just one cell that can uh, drive relapse and you just don't hit the location where this cell survives treatment, um, it's clear that the patient is MRD negative, uh, but there's still a relapse subclone. Undetectable. Undetected, exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. a good term, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> fair. We, we also work together, we haven't shown the data, but like that the myeloma, this ability of seeding from one side to another, like mm. these cells that can go from the bone marrow to the spine, uh, to the, the ribs, and we have like a couple of cases that are irradiated and using a complex uh, um, approach, we demonstrate that the cell seed from the radiation, like squeeze out and goes to the bone marrow and repopulate the bone marrow. So this an an anatomic distribution, uh, I mean, you pioneered this with your paper in 2017, I think, 2017. And, and then we can now working together, I think are very fascinating and scary at the same point, because it's kind of, I can at least say, how can you identify one cell and how can you identify in the right location? It's, it's, you know, it's, I think, impossible. Well, I think with that, I'd like to thank my uh, co-speakers and thank you for uh, paying attention today. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean. Until next time.